0: Well, thank you, Bob, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Before I get started today, I um, want to remind you that Dennis Statham has done a wonderful job every week of posting uh, the messages. He's been doing that for quite some time on our church website. And so, if you if you miss one of the sermons in this series, or you miss a Sunday evening—pardon me—a Sunday morning service. We'll get to Sunday evening later today. But if you miss a morning service, you can always go to our website. And I know during the winter months, we've got people that just can't be here. I walked in this morning and heard of a couple of people that just weren't here today. You already heard about Jerry Parent, who was sick. So I would encourage you to go to the website. We always have uh, the notes that you pick up out here in the narthex on the website there. So you can actually click on, you can read as you listen, if you're more visual than audio. Uh, you can get the word both ways, and I encourage you to pick up those notes because on a Sunday morning like this, you can see we're already at a quarter a, half, a quarter past the hour. Um, I'm not going to get all the way through everything that's written down here today. I wish I could. That's frustrating for a perfectionist, but um, my prayer and my hope is that these notes will be... A tool for you to get into the Word of God. Look up the references. Do the study yourself. Get into the Word and, and get into this story and let God speak to your heart. And so I just encourage you to do that as we continue in this study of Nehemiah uh, together. Now, many of you will remember that uh, I attended Gordon-Conwell Seminary many, many years ago. And uh, Billy Graham was the chancellor, I believe, of uh, that school. Uh, He had a a, a title at any rate, and he was speaking on Founders Day after I'd graduated, and he made this statement about our country, and I want to read it. He said, on that occasion, we've lost sight of the fact that some things are always right and some things are always wrong wrong. We've lost our reference point, speaking of America. We don't have any moral philosophy to undergird our way of life in this country anymore. And our way of life is in serious jeopardy and serious danger unless something different happens. And that something must be, he said, a spiritual Revival. I agree with Billy Graham. Unless there's a moral, spiritual awakening which produces people with changed hearts, changed lives, changed values, and changed priorities, there is nothing political that can be done that will save this country from decline and eventually from destruction. And only God can bring about that kind of awakening, that kind of revival. That's why the song that we sang this morning as a prayer is so important. That was a prayer that we sang in that first song this morning. We're asking God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to build his kingdom, to bring his kingdom. And he will bring it when Jesus comes again for the millennium to set up his kingdom on this planet. And we're going to be a part of it. But we want revival before then. We want a taste of that kingdom. We want an awakening, a spiritual revival, an awakening that only God can bring. That's why we need to be praying, because only God can do it. Only God can bring it. Now, if you've been traveling with us, over the past many weeks now, here in the book of Nehemiah, then you'll remember that God did something very unique and special uh, through this man. Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding and renewal and revival. And God did it as he moved in the heart of King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes changed his mind, his policy, and he allowed Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall. Now, if I could divide this book into two parts, I would do it in this way. Chapters 1 through 6 is the story of the rebuilding of the physical wall in Jerusalem. We have that story, and we've been following that story against great, opposition. There was great opposition that came against the people as they tried to rebuild this wall. And then the second half of this book is all about spiritual revival and renewal, and we're going to get into that next week. And I would ask you to be in prayer and to read chapter 8 ahead of time before you come into this, this room next week, because it is one of the most significant events which took place in Old Testament history. This is quite a story, and we're going to see the verse that Bob just talked about next week in verse 10 of chapter 8, because there's a great revival at the Watergate in Jerusalem as the people gather there, and Ezra reads the word, the law of God. Now, this last week, I want to just uh, say something else before I dive in here. Pastor Don Lyon walked into this this building, and he came into my office, and he gave me a little handout. And I've looked through it. I think it's uh, just a great little handout. It's called Seven Ways That Satan Attacks a Church. Now, you just heard me say that the first six chapters of this book are the story of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, and they encountered great opposition. Those, that's the story of chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, this little handout, seven ways that Satan attacks a church, I think is very relevant to where we are today as a church in America. Church conflict, burnout, burnout. Rumor. We just talked about that in the book of Nehemiah. If you want one of these, I would be happy to duplicate one of them for you. And it's worth reading it because it's really the story of what we've just been through in this book. And this was originally written by a pastor, Ron Edmondson, uh, back in 2012. He preached it at Emanuel Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. So I guess God is even working in the South, not just the, the North. Uh, The Lord's a a God of all, all of this planet. But uh, anyway, a great little handout, and I want to just mention that to you. Now, Nehemiah 7, where we are this morning then, falls right in between the first half and the second half of this book. It's a transitional chapter. And if you've read ahead... There's 73 verses in this chapter, and there's a lot of names. And you may be scratching your head at this point if you've got your Bible open or if you've you got your, your Scripture on your, your iPad or whatever you've got with you today. You may be scratching your head wondering, well, what on earth can we learn from this chapter? Why does God have this chapter in the Bible? Is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 really true? Is all Scripture given by inspiration of God? Is is there really any value in this chapter, in this book? What's it there for? It falls right in the middle, chapter 7, between the first half and the second half of this book. And at first glance, it seems like there's not anything of real value here. But if you dig deeper, there's a lot here for the people of God. Because what happens in this chapter, it's now the the month of October, Elul. And the wall has been rebuilt. And Nehemiah now is going to take a census. And if you look at verse 5, you see that they've got this city, which the walls have been rebuilt, but there are very few people in it. Because after they've rebuilt the walls, a lot of these people have gone back to their hometowns outside of the city and so, Nehemiah is going to take a census now of the families, and as he's preparing to take this census in order to repopulate the city, to reinhabit it, he stumbles on an old genealogy, an old list of family histories of the first wave of people which came back from captivity, the exiles, Under Zerubbabel, almost 90 years earlier. And if you compare chapter 7 here in Nehemiah to chapter 2 in the book of Ezra, you'll see that they're identical with just a few variations. And if you wonder why there's a few discrepancies or variations, I would recommend to you the commentary by Derek Thomas called Ezra Nehemiah. He does a great job of delving into why the differences. Is the word of God still in Aaron? And, and supposedly there's, these are identical lists. He does a great job of explaining in a very practical way why there are some differences. The same list with just a few variations. This old genealogical history of these families which came to Jerusalem almost 90 years earlier. And what I think we have now here in chapter 7, we're going to talk about it now for about the next 20 minutes, and we're not going to be able to get through all the notes, but I want to hit the highlights. What we have here, I believe, are several very practical steps that God gives us for staying strong spiritually. And so this chapter is strategically placed Between the first six chapters and the end of this book, as we're going to get into now, this story of spiritual revival and renewal. How do we stay strong spiritually? And the first thing I want you to notice this morning is that there are some suggestions here and steps that are relevant to some of us Personally and individually, and some of these are more relevant to us as a group, as a church. But every one of them has relevance. And the first step I want to mention is this idea of delegating delegating and not dominating. Look at verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah and his people have rebuilt this wall. Now, it's one thing to build something. It's another thing to keep it going. It's one thing to rebuild a wall. It's another thing to repopulate the city and have revival. And so this principle is very important. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. After the wall had been rebuilt, the Bible tells us, and I, that is Nehemiah, had set the doors in place The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Now, who appointed them? Well, Nehemiah did. And I put in charge of Jerusalem, Nehemiah says, my brother, Hanani, and along with him, Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity or a faithful man, if you had the ESV, and he feared God more than most men do. What I want you to see here is that Nehemiah delegates responsibility and leadership. He doesn't hold on to it. And now I want to talk to the elders and the deacons and the trustees and the spiritual leaders in this church for a moment. This is a very important principle. You see, as a leader, as a pastor or as an elder, or a deacon, or whoever, whatever title you may have, it's easy to want to hold on to your leadership. And Nehemiah was the the leader. He was the one that came back to Jerusalem, and he led the effort to rebuild the walls and the gates in this city. But notice he doesn't hold on. He appoints temple guards, gatekeepers, those who guarded the temple gates to get, guard the gates of the city. And then he appoints his his brother Hananiah and this, this other leader Hananiah to take over leadership and assume responsibility. Now, we know from the book that he remained governor of Jerusalem for 12 years. And it may be that he's preparing to go back to Susa now because the wall's been rebuilt and he needs to lead the, leave the leadership in the hands of some people while he's gone for a while. It's probably a historical circumstance here, but the, the important principle here is that he passes responsibility and leadership on to others. Shared leadership. And that's important in the life of a church, just like it was important in the nation of Israel. It's important that you delegate, that you don't dominate as a leader. And we allow others to become involved in, in helping the rebuilding effort. Got a little book here that Russ Hilton, one of our elders, has read, and I think George Sparmer read it too. I recommended it to the elders as I was preparing to move here about a year ago. It's called The Top 10 Mistakes That Leaders Make. It's a book by Hans Frenzel, Fensel, who um, was president and CEO of World Venture very heavily involved in missions we we support a number of missionaries with world venture and in this book he quotes oswald sanders who wrote a classic book on spiritual leadership and this is what sanders said leadership is the ability to recognize the special abilities and limitations of others we all have abilities and we all have limitations And I learned that about 10 or 12 years ago after my first bout with cancer, I came back and I wasn't as strong as I was before. And I realized all of a sudden I couldn't do some of the things that I did before. And I realized that I was a limited resource. And if the work of God was going to go on with a group of people that I was serving at that time, other people were going to have to step up. And other people were going to have to do some things. Leadership is the ability to recognize the special abilities and limitations of others. And we all have abilities, and we all have limitations in the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. We need each other, and we need each other if the work of God is going to get done. It's the ability to recognize that combined with the capacity to fit each one into the job where he will do his best. And Nehemiah passes on responsibility and leadership in this passage. D.L. Moody said at one point, I'd rather get 10 men to do, the, to do the job than to do the job of 10 men. And he gets others involved in the project here. Now, it's easy to hold on and to not let go. It's easy to hold on and to not delegate. Why? Why? Why do we do that? Well, I do it all the time. Sometimes we do it for fear of losing authority, for fear of work being done poorly. Well, I can do it better than they can do it. Maybe you're an expert gate builder or you're, you're an expert carpenter and you can do it better than the other person next to you. So we don't delegate, we don't share. Sometimes we don't do this because of fear of work being done better. Huh, they'll show me up. They'll see how, what a poor carpenter I am and what a poor job I did on my section of the wall. There are lots of reasons we don't do it but, but it, but Nehemiah didn't dominate. He delegated. And that's an important principle. But notice, please, he didn't delegate to just anybody. Notice the description of these two people that he passes responsibility and leadership onto. Notice that Hananiah was a man of proven courage. We know that from chapter one. Not everybody wanted to go back to Jerusalem for this rebuilding project, but Hananiah was the guy who brought the report to Nehemiah, and now he's a part of the project. He's a man of proven courage. And notice the description now of this second man in this passage Hananiah. He's a man that is trustworthy. He's firm, he's stable, he's faithful. Read the ESV version. That word faithful is a good translation of this Hebrew word. And notice that he feared God. He was a God-fearing man. There are a lot of people that don't fear God, that don't really reverence God. And now I'm talking about people that even attend church. There are some people that come to church that don't really have a reverence or an awe or a fear of God. So character is important, and we know that from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Character is the foundation of leadership, and so he passes on responsibility and leadership to men of proven character. He didn't just delegate to anybody or everybody. Now, the second thing I want you to see in, in this chapter, and a second, I think, step, in staying strong spiritually as a church and as individual is this principle of guarding your gates. Look at verse 3. Notice what Nehemiah does. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem, I'm reading verse 3 again now, are not to be opened until the sun is hot while while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some near their own houses. Notice now that just because the walls and the gates of this city have been rebuilt, Nehemiah doesn't just put things on autopilot, relax, and start to coast. He's still vigilant. He sets these temple guards To guard the gates of the city. And he takes other people and he posts them by their homes and different sections of the wall to guard against the enemy getting in. Now, remember what we learned in the first couple of weeks the gates of an ancient city, like Jerusalem, were the most vulnerable point of the city because the gates were the place through which the enemies could enter. They were the, the the entry points of the city. The, the, it's where business and trafficking took place. People would come and go through the city gates, and so notice what Nehemiah does here. Normally, the gates were opened early in the morning, but what does he say? He says, don't open them till the sun is hot so that the enemy won't get in in the early morning and slip into the city, and, and he knew that Just because the walls had been rebuilt, that doesn't mean that Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah and all of the enemy cronies just evaporated, that they just went away. They were still looking for an opportunity, a way to undermine the work of God. And so he sets up, he posts these guards at the gates and around the city. Now, I think there's a very important spiritual principle here that's vital to staying strong individually and as a church family. And that is that we need to continuously be on guard. That is a New Testament principle as well as an Old Testament teaching that we find here. We need to be vigilant. We need to be on our guard against the enemy because what have we learned the last several weeks? Opposition is what? Relentless. The enemy will always be looking for an opportunity to come against you. When Jesus was tempted in Luke 4, if you read that passage, at the end of Jesus' temptation, the Bible says that Satan left him until another opportune time. Satan didn't just end his temptation of Christ on that occasion in the desert. He's always looking for a way to trip us up. And so we need to be on guard Vigilant, alert, just as Nehemiah recognized that they needed to continue to guard the gates of the city. Here, we need to be aware of where we're vulnerable. One of the things that we did is when we when I came here as an interim, one of the is we we did a a what we called the NCD Health Survey, and it 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 we did an interview with thirty people here in this church family. as we tried to discover what the, the strengths and the weaknesses were of this church family. And every church family has its strengths and its weaknesses. The places where you're strong and the places where we're not as strong, where we're weak, we're vulnerable. Those are like the gates of the city. It's important that we're aware of our points of vulnerability where we're not as strong because that's where Satan can get us you can get in, even get us in areas of strength. So we need to be aware of our weaknesses as a church family and as individuals. And we need to be vigilant and, and alert so the enemy doesn't get in. Now, if you look at page two in your notes, and if you go to the website later this week or if you take these home with you, you're going to see that I've given you a number of verses at the bottom of that page that talk about being on guard and that talk about spiritual warfare. Chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians is listed there. Let me just read a couple of verses to you. First Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be on your guard. Be on your guard. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage and be strong. The Apostle Paul when he was passing on leadership to the elders in the church at Ephesus, spoke these words. He said, keep watch over yourselves. Isn't that interesting? Before he said, keep watch over the flock. He said, keep watch over yourselves. Because the enemy can get in and trip you up. Just as Nehemiah posted guards at these gates, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. We're talking now about how the enemy can get in and, and ruin any good work of God. He can do it. Now, there's a third principle here that I want to talk about briefly, and that is family is foundational. What we have now in the rest of this chapter here in chapter 7 is, is the, the record of this first wave of pioneers that came over with Zerubbabel, and it's family genealogies. It's the name of people that settled in Jerusalem Before they rebuilt the temple, and as they rebuilt it. And I think there's a principle here, and that is that family is foundational to any rebuilding, renewing, reviving work that God wants to do. Families are important, genealogies were important in the Old Testament, these records. These were God-fearing families that came back to settle this city. And this is a central theme of Nehemiah 7 and Nehemiah 11, when we'll pick this back up toward the end of the book. What I want you to see here, if you look at page 4 in your notes now, and maybe that was page 3. I may have had the wrong page number earlier. I apologize. You'll have to look it up for yourself. But if you look at page 4 in the notes, you're going to see that 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 God has a place for families in his work. And we've given you a number of passages there. Families are central. What you do in your family and what you do with your family is critical. Is it any reason that here in America today, there's this horrific breakdown of the family? Because if the enemy can destroy families... He can destroy what churches and he can destroy cities and he can destroy states and he can destroy a country. There's a reason the enemies come against families. There's a reason that families are mentioned here because families are foundational to what God wants to do in building his kingdom and spreading his word, the gospel here in our country. So families are foundational, And I would encourage you to invest in your family. Now, we're going to just mention these next three principles, and then we're going to close in prayer. As I told you, I'm a man of my word. We're not going to finish this morning. But I want you, want to just mention these other principles. Look at verses 6 and 7. Remember redemption. Remember redemption. And I'm going to end with that one today, but I'm going to mention the other two. People are a priority. People are important. You can read what D.A. Carson says about this genealogical list in the notes on page five and do further study here. People are a priority in God's renewing, rebuilding work. And then the last thing I want you to see as you get to the end of this chapter is that money matters. There were people that gave to this work. It doesn't just happen by accident. Money matters in the work of God. And you're gonna see the governor and the leaders of homes Contributing the work. But I want to end this morning with verses six and seven. Remembering redemption. Look at verses six and seven. And notice how these people are described as he found this, this record of families that came back to repopulate the city, this genealogical record. They're described as exiles they were captives they were taken captive by the king of babylon and they they were they were able to come back they returned to jerusalem under the leadership of the ten people mentioned there in verse 7 but what i want you to see here is the people that god brought back to this city were people that he redeemed from slavery or bondage he redeemed them from the second exile. You know what the first exile was? The first exile was when the children of Israel went into captivity where to Egypt and they were redeemed by Moses. You remember the story? They were brought out of captivity by Moses. That was the first exile. This group of people they are redeemed by God through the hands of Zerubbabel and guys like Ezra and Nehemiah. He brings these people along. They're redeemed, and they come back to their homeland. They're brought back out of bondage, out of exile by these leaders, but they're redeemed by God. Now, turn to, back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8 for just a moment. I want you to see something. This is a description of Redemption under Moses, the first exile. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And here's what God says For you're a holy people, speaking about Israel to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the least. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping you The oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It was by the grace of God that he redeemed them because he loved them. Now, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29 for just a moment. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Now, this is a passage, and these are some verses that people like to quote a lot. But let's put it in context for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 29, 10. And I believe here we have now a prophecy of redemption in the second exile as this group comes back to Jerusalem. And notice what God says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. This was spoken before Israel went into captivity for the second time, and they were redeemed from that captivity. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and, I, and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be find, found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from which I have sent you into exile. God redeemed them by his grace. And I think there's a very important spiritual principle here for us this morning, and that is if you want to stay strong spiritually, another principle, and it's very practical, is always remember your redemption. There's nothing inherent in us deserving to be rescued from, from the slavery of bondage or to be saved by the grace of God. There's nothing in us. We are sinners saved by grace. And if you, if you forget that principle, then it's easy to start coasting. It's easy to, to, to just become complacent in, in the Christian life. But if you remember redemption, if you always go back to God's redemption, His grace, His saving grace in your life, He redeemed you from slavery, from bondage, from the bondage of sin. It will keep you alive spiritually. It will keep you strong and going in the Christian life. Now let's bow together in prayer as we prepare to sing our last song. The words will be on the screen, just a couple of verses, and we're going to sing it together.